Ephesians. We're going to be actually getting, Lord willing, at least into verse 3 tonight. I, my plan is to at least start verse 3. Whether or not we'll finish verse 3, I'll let you know. But as with each of our studies of, the, of books of the Bible, I want to do a little bit of the, of the who's and the what's and the when's and the why's. Now, again, for those of you that have never been here for a part of my, one of my Bible studies, I don't spend too, too much time really breaking down all the introductory material. There is a wealth of introductory material out there today. If you want to study more deeper than what I'm going to give you here in this time, it's available online. There are commentaries. There are study Bibles that can really go into this in far more detail. My purpose is to just give you a running start into who wrote this, when was it written, who was it written to, what was their purpose, and then we're going to get into actually letting the Word speak for itself. Again, if you would want to wrestle with whether or not you think this happened or that We'll touch on some of those things, but then you can go wrestle with it on your own. That's not the purpose of what we do here. All right. Now, so we'll start off with who wrote this book. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, look at what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Jump over to chapter 3 and look at again at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul... A prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he goes on. So according to Ephesians 1.1 and Ephesians 3.1, who wrote this? Paul did. Now, interestingly enough, and again, this is where if you want to go wrestle with this more, you can. There is most every Bible scholar believes this book was written by Paul. Of course, by the Holy Spirit through Paul. There are some that think that he didn't write it. Now, some of the reasons you'll see in a little bit as we deal with who was he writing to. But... Just, let me just touch on the fact that Paul spent three years in, in Ephesus. He spent a long time, got to know those people well. If you know, in Acts chapter 20, he actually meets the Ephesian elders as he's on his way through. And he stops in Miletus and they go and meet him. And he weeps with them because he thinks he'll never see them again. And because Paul doesn't deal with any very specific issues there in the church in Ephesus, some people think that Paul didn't write it. Because if Paul had spent three years there and Paul in his letters would deal with specific issues in each of the churches that he was writing to, Paul doesn't do that here. Paul, as you also know, if you remember, if you looked at other ones, he would give personal greed in some of the letters that he would write to those churches because he had friends everywhere. He doesn't do that in this book. And so some people start to say, well, then Paul couldn't have written it. But actually, Paul said he did. So that's good enough for me. All right. Now, who was it written to? But now this is where it actually gets interesting. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and look at verse 1. Who was it written to? Saints, Saints where? Well, I'm going to tell you. We don't know. We're pretty sure that it was written to Ephesus, but there's a strong chance, and I'm going to show you why, that this wasn't written just to the church at Ephesus, which also will explain all the questions. All right, see, we would look at that and say, wait a minute, Jim, you're taking, it says, I, Paul. Why won't you just take for what the word says? It's in Ephesus, to the saints in Ephesus. Why, why isn't that enough? Well, here's why. If you were to do the study and you would go look at some of the oldest manuscripts we have, some of the ones that were the closest to the originals. Again, you've heard me talk about this before. We don't have the actual piece of paper Paul wrote on. They didn't have copy machines back then. They didn't have Xerox. They couldn't fax it. All right. So what they did was they would hand copy the letters. You know, you'd say a church would get a letter from Paul and people would say, oh, can I have a copy of that? Someone would have to hand copy it. We have hand copies and then they'd make hand copies of hand copies and hand copies of hand copies and so on. They're called manuscripts written out by hand. 
the oldest ones we have, the ones that go back that can be dated the closest to when Paul wrote this, the oldest ones we have don't have the words in Ephesus in it. It actually reads, those, that one, those manuscripts read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, that's interesting. Actually, let me read it to you how it really words again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are, are in and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Seems kind of weird. And to be honest with you, the Greek sentence structure without the words in Ephesus there doesn't work. Scholars would say the sentence structure in Greek is wrong. This is missing something. The, pa the passage of the manuscripts that don't have in Ephesus... They don't, it doesn't flow right. So there, yet we have a lot of manuscripts, remember, hand copies down, that are closer to our time, if you will, not as early as the original, or close to the originals, that we have dated to closer to our time, and they all have in Ephesus in it. And so now we have to wrestle with, how come? And actually, as I have dealt with this before, in my study, though, for this breakdown of Ephesians, I ran across an explanation that I think in my spirit and in my mind, it makes sense. You will do a study and you'll find that Ephesians was most likely written to be what they call a cyclical letter. Or it was written to Christians and it was to be passed on from church to church to church to church. Written by Paul to encourage believers, teach, teach and to train but it wasn't written specifically to one church. It was written specifically to go from church to church to church throughout the churches of Asia Minor. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Go to Colossians and look at chapter 4 and verse 16. You're in Ephesians. You've got Philippians right after that and then Colossians. And look at chapter 4. <clears throat> and look at verse 16. It says there, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Do you see it? It was a very common practice for Paul to write letters and say, hey, pass it around. I like this idea. Again, this doesn't mean that's what it is. But there's a strong chance that when Paul wrote this letter, it was to begin in Ephesus and then to be passed on. And therefore he left the city it was to be going to blank. The sentence structure will work if you put in whatever city it ever, it's to go to. And chances are the original didn't have in Ephesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? To the saints who are, put, put your name here. You see what I'm saying? And then it was to be passed around. Now, of course, and I'll get right to you, Duke. Of course, there were those who then wrote in Ephesus in it because they were from there. And those copies made it to where we have, or copies of copies made it to where we are. And chances are that's why some of the original, or not original, but the oldest manuscripts don't have in Ephesus, yet others do. And the sentence structure doesn't flow unless there's something in there because Paul set it up to be a cyclical letter that was to be passed around to the churches in Asia Minor. And therefore, that answers the wrestling match between why does it original or the oldest ones not have in Ephesus, yet other ones do? Why does the sentence structure not work unless there's something like that there? Yes, yes, sir. It also explains why he didn't 
Exactly. That also solves the question of why didn't he put us personal greeting in there if it was to the Ephesians? Well, he knew it wasn't just to them. It was to be passed on. That's why he doesn't deal with any specific issue in the church in Ephesus, because it wasn't just for them. And folks, there's something exciting about that as well. You hopefully understand that even though God wrote to the church in Corinth through Paul or the church here through Paul, God still speaks through his word to us. Yet at the same time, even more so, if this was to be written to all the believers in that area, there is a wealth of stuff that is here for us. And I can't wait to show you as we begin to look at what it is. So who was it written to? It was written to the Christians or the saints, and we'll get to that in a little bit, there in Ephesus, but also in Colossae and so on. And actually, when was it written? If you're curious about this kind of thing, let's, let's do this here so she gets a little privacy. All right. I'm too good looking to have anybody else compete with my beauty here. So, and those, those bathing, bathing beauties behind me might win. So, all right, and here's the deal. At who, it was written between 60 and 62 AD. All right. It was written between 60 and 62 AD, and it was written by Paul. And here's something that's very interesting as well. It was written by Paul from prison in Rome. If you go look at Acts chapter 28, you'll see that he ends up in prison and he actually was under guard, but he had some freedom. People could come and go. And we know now that actually while I was there, he wrote a couple of books, actually two or three. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. They're called the prison epistles. And that's why as we get into Philippians and Colossians, after we study Ephesians, you're going to say, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like Ephesians. And that's almost word for word in Colossians that he wrote here in Ephesians. That's because he wrote all of these while he was in prison and they were to be passed around. That's why we read in Colossians, have this one read here and make sure you read the one from the Laodiceans. And we don't have the one from the Laodiceans, but we know there was one written to the church there in Laodicea. And so with that in mind, uh, this is what, what his purpose was. He was to encourage Christians while he was sitting there in prison. Now, again, keep that in mind throughout this study. Everything you read when Paul says, man, I wish you guys would understand the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of God's love. Where is he writing it from? Prison. Prison. Isn't that amazing? Think about how many Christians today who are going through a tough time would say, get your encouragement from someone else right now. I'm in the pit. Paul knew something and he understood that there's more to than just being saved. That's why we get to Philippians. We'll get there in chapter three when he says, I want to know Christ. Amen. Wait a minute. I thought you already knew Christ. I thought you already saved. Oh, there's more to him than this. I want to know him better. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I'm forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what's ahead. Even in this, and you're going to see later on in chapter one and chapter three, he says, I want you guys to have the eyes of your hearts opened, that you would know him better. And so, folks, I can't wait to get into this Galatians study because we're not going to try to answer the why uh, tonight of this book being written because it will be unanswered as we unpack everything and begin to break it all out. But there's a couple of things that I want to do as we just kind of get started here is what I want to do is I want to just kind of remind you a little bit of what Galatians was about. Just real briefly, remember, we studied Galatians and Paul was writing to them and reminding them of what Christ had already accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. And he said, look, don't try to, you, you, you started in the spirit and by faith, don't try to finish yourself in the flesh and by your own effort, rest in the grace of God. Remember, Tell him, don't go back to legalism, rest in his grace. 
Ephesians, though, goes even deeper. And you're going to see the book of Ephesians is going to be used by God to speak to us about the fact that he says, I want you to know him better. He's going to talk about that same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. And it's time, folks, that we ourselves lived in that and experienced it. It's time that the world saw that. I don't want us to go and try to manufacture it. I don't want us to turn it into anything unbiblical. But it's time that we moved to living in the spirit, not in the flesh, and letting the spirit of God actually take over in the way in which is really available to us. And most Christians, and I wish I didn't have to say this, but it's true. Most Christians never will get to the level that we're going to talk about in the book of Ephesians. But if you guys are willing to come listen to me for all these years on a Tuesday night, I think that you guys have a lot more going for you than not because I'm worth anything, but you've got to have the spirit of God within you to be able to put up with me. So therefore, Amen. I think yeah, I, I appreciate that. And it was unnecessary at the same time. If I had a chalkboard, I would put your name on the board and say, see me after class. All right. That's right. But before we look at Ephesians, I want to show you two things real quick to show you that Paul wrote this, this and other letters from the prison in Rome. And they, was, they were sent by a guy named Tychicus. That's hard to pronounce his name. He was to pass them around. Go to Ephesians 6 real quick and look at verses 21 and 22. Ephesians 6 verses 21 and 22. Paul says at the end of this letter that we're going to be looking at, he says, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. All right. With the letter, Tychicus is the one who carried the letter. Well, go to Colossians, two books over and look at chapter four, verses seven and nine or seven, eight, and nine. Colossians four, verses seven, eight, and nine. Here he says to the church in Colossae, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. And if you know anything about Onesimus, you know the book of Philemon. Folks, do you understand? While he's sitting in prison, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And Tychicus was to take them around to them and at the same time give them report about who Paul, how Paul was doing and what was going on. All right? That is your basic intro to the book of Ephesians. You want more? Google it. All right? <laughs> Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We already dealt with that in our study of Galatians, so we're not going to take too much time. We're just going to just move on. Remember, Paul was called by God to be an apostle and to be a leader in the church and also to be sent on this traveling ministry to equip believers all over that area of the world. All right, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, because I don't want to spend too much time repeating things we've already looked at. We've already looked at grace and peace as Paul wrote that in a lot of his letters. We've already studied that. You want to know more about, you say, Jim, I wasn't here. 
Go to the website. Go click on Bible studies there on the main page of the website. Go to the book of Galatians. Click on it and you'll see it in the intro to that. We'll deal with it there. All right. So that's where you'll get your answers there. I want to just bring out that middle section here. It says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. I want to unpack that a little bit. First of all, he calls them saints. Now, this is important that we deal with this because there's a, a lot of misconceptions and confusion when it comes to the term saints. In the church today, in a lot of circles, the term saint a lot of times refers to special people in the church who are morally better than us in our minds or have accomplished great religious feats. And we all, have you ever heard someone say, well, that person's a saint, you know? Unfortunately, I still don't know why, but many people keep say that about Becky for being married to me. That, she's a saint. Well, I know what they're trying to say, but I want you to hear me. That is an unbiblical use of the term saint. And I'm going to show you as we look through the scriptures tonight. The term saint is descriptive of every single believer in Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus. Now listen, it also referred to the Old Testament saints. Those who were the special, the chosen, the people who followed God by faith. Of course, Jesus' death took care of them and gave them righteousness as well. And Paul is actually just saying, look, they're Old Testament saints. So too are you saints. And you're going to see that in a little bit as we get to, the, get to that word faithful. But right now, I want to just show you scripturally how the Bible uses the term saints to describe all believers. They're not some people that are more saintly than others. We're all saints according to the scriptures. All right. Go to um, uh, Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 7. He says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now you say, Jim, that doesn't just say then that, that that's everybody. That just simply says that there are those who are called to be saints. Was the book of Romans written to just a few people or to all the believers in Rome? All the believers in Rome. And actually it gets more clear in time. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 26 through 30. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Paul goes on and says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, in this passage that we've already looked at in times past, it talks about how the Spirit prays on our behalf according to the will of God. But who is he praying for? Saints. The saints. Again, is this passage teaching that he's only praying for the special ones who are in the church or for everyone? Everyone. everyone. We know that all things work together for good was a promise to the believers, not just the special people. So saints in the Bible, and it gets more clear. Let's go to Psalm 31. But we see saints in the Bible is referring to those who are the, the beloved of God, if you will, because of their relationship with Him through faith. Psalm 31. Look at verses 23 through 24. It says, Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Again, 
This is not talking about the special few. This is talking about all those who trust in the Lord. I know it's hard for some of us because we might have grown up in denominations that used the term saint to refer to only certain folks. And after a certain time, they could be decreed a saint and all this. Folks, that's never what the Bible taught. That's never what the Bible taught. We all are saints if you're in Christ Jesus. All right. Now go to chapter uh, 116 of Psalms. And this one actually right now has a lot more meaning for me than it ever did. Psalm 116 verses 12 through 19. says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Yeah. Folks, are just the special ones, their death precious in the sight of the Lord? Or is everyone's? Remember what Jesus said? Look, don't you know that these sparrows are sold for like two farthings and not one falls to the ground without your father knowing? Aren't you of more value than that? Folks, when you hear the term saint, understand it's talking about you. Now, this, by the way, and we're going to get a couple more scriptures, one more, one more scripture that, that lay this out. But I need to take a second here and help you with something. This is what's caused some of the confusion, though, with people's interpretation of the book of Revelation. This is why some people have tried to read the church into the book of Revelation between in chapters 4 through 19 when all that stuff's going on during the tribulation period is because the Bible talks about how Satan goes after the saints. And they just assume that every time the word saint is used it means the church or believers. No. Remember there's Old Testament saints, there's New Testament saints, that everyone who is the special, beloved of God because of their relationship with Him, that's the, whom the Bible calls saints. When the Old Testament we saw them called saints, but they hadn't been saved through faith in Christ yet, but they were called saints. In the New Testament, this is where we're going to go tonight, Paul is clarifying to the believers, look, you're saints too. You're saints too. This is your position, and that's going to be very important. Even though the church has been removed, there are going to be those who come to faith through the Spirit's work during the tribulation period. They become saints as well. They become His beloved, His, His chosen, if you will. And they'll be called saints. But that doesn't mean that every time you see the word saints, it represents the church. And that's why there's been some confusion. Actually, the Bible talks about the church quite clearly in the New Testament. The ecclesia, the called out ones. Yet, during that part of, of Revelation were not mentioned. Remove, we're removed. But we'll go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And we'll wrap up with this section um, by looking at Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. Now, again, passage you've heard me teach on quite a bit. And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip who? The saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. And then it goes on and describes as each part does its work. 
again, very clearly in this passage, are the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastor teachers the saints? Well, yes. But are they the special ones? No. They're equipping who? The The saints to do the work of the ministry. So don't think that there's a special select group of people that are better than others and they're called saints. The term saint applies to you. Now, folks, please, I'm hammering this for a reason. We're going to be going in our study in the book of Ephesians to really begin to understand all that has been accomplished in our salvation and our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're moving away. We've already we're we're done with legalism. We're, We're learning to rest in grace and walk in the spirit and keep in step with the spirit. But in order for us to do that, we have to now move to the direction that Paul's wanting us to move to and understand what it really means to be in Christ. You have, I love how you put it, Jim, been given a position now. Did you earn it? No. So if you didn't do anything to earn it, are you going to do anything to lose it? No. It was a gift. And your salvation was more than just, well, I've been saved. No, 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 no. As you're about to see, something unbelievably supernatural and awesome and powerful has been accomplished. And the sad thing is, for many, many years in the church, life of the church, it wasn't taught to us to really understand what it means to be in Christ. And this is where we're going. Now, yes, there are those who have taken it to unbiblical realms. We won't go there. But we're not going to be afraid of the biblical truth either and just stay and say, this is good enough for me. I want everything he has for me. And I have begun in my later time of my walk with the Lord and the last 10 plus years of my ministry, begun to really understand what it means to be in Christ and to live in His Spirit and live in grace and to move away from trying to work hard for Jesus and hope He's pleased, but to really understand His power. And folks, I have begun to experience the same power that rose Jesus from the dead in many ways in my life, and I don't want to ever go back. But I also don't want to be alone. Because here's part of the... (laughs) Here's part of the problem. One of the things I wrestle with and I struggle with is, as I try to share this with other Christians, it's like it's going over their head. And so the only way you're going to grasp what I'm talking about is if you yourself say, Jim, I don't know if I believe it for you say, but I want to find out if it's true. God, is what Jim's teaching here biblically true? I want to know if this, so don't just say, well, Jim says it. You've got to wrestle for yourself till you get to that point where you realize what it means to rest in him and to do only what you do by his power and to see him do it and to trust in him. And you will move into a place where when people say, how are you doing? You will no longer have a quick reaction of hanging in there. You will no longer saying doing the best I can, which most Christians say. Yeah, you will move into an understanding of even in the midst of all this stuff. I felt weird when people say, Jim, are you doing okay? I have to tell you, folks, there's still tears. I still choke up with my mom dying. It's many of you have been through this before, but to to just be there and to look at the dead body of your mom, to know she ain't there anymore and have to help carry her out. It's It's a weird place. It's just it's something I can't even put into words. Yet, I don't know why, but I got more and more excited. You know, my dad said to me yesterday, well, I had to cancel your mom's eye appointment. 
And I said, great. She's been cured. She doesn't have eye trouble anymore. And I had to cancel her neurology appointment. Praise God. She doesn't have Alzheimer's anymore. Yes, we'll still grieve, but not like the rest of men who have no hope. But folks, let me just tell you, you try to work it up on your own, you won't. This is only something that happens from within by his power. I can't explain it, but I'm telling you, it's, oh, yeah. I can't help you get there. All I can do is what Paul's about to do for us and say, here's how I'm praying for you. I want you to know it's there. I want you to know it's real. I want you to be able to sit in a prison and say, folks, I'm tasting something here you've never tasted, and I hope you experience what I'm getting. Suzanne can tell us what we're talking about, can't you? In the midst of your cancer struggle, you have had a relationship growing and deepening and a knowledge of him and his power and his spirit that no, very few Christians will ever understand. But the hard part is you can't explain it to them. You can't explain it to them. And the only way you're going to get there yourself is to believe that it's true and head there yourself. I remember Miss Ray and I talked not long after your husband passed away. And you said you wouldn't love to have him die again, but you experienced in that time an understanding of who he is and a relationship with him that you would, and you've been a Christian for a long, long time. I think a hundred years, you said. <laughs> Folks, listen to me. We're about to move into this in our study now. And we get to verse 3. Some of you are going to say, oh, it's just words. Oh, it's not. And you know what? I wish I could do more to tell you, but I can't. And God's done it this way for a reason. The last thing we see in verse 2, though, or, or the, the, the rest of verse uh, 1, I meant, was it talks about in our faithful. Actually, that term translated faithful is a hard one to translate because there's two ways it could be translated. And usually you pick which way according to the context. The problem here is the context doesn't help us either. All right, it can be translated as faithful in the sense of obedient and doing what it is they're supposed to do. But it also could be just simply translated believers. All right, and usually the context will help you know which way to translate it. The context here doesn't help. So some Bibles call it faithful. Uh, I think what Paul was saying was to all the saints who are believers in Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I'm tying you in with that same group of saints from the Old Testament, but your New Testament saints because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand? I don't think he was only writing to the Christian. Remember, he's being passed to all the churches. He couldn't have been writing to only those who were obedient. Do you understand? He couldn't have been writing to only those who were faithful. Because let's be honest, if someone were to pass us a letter from someone that says this is written to the people who are being faithful, we'd say, well, pass it on. I don't need to read it. But I don't think he was doing that. I think he was clarifying your saints. You have a position because of your belief in Jesus Christ. All right. That's everybody. Now, what does he say next? And look at just verse three. And like I said, we could spend weeks in verse three. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm just going to stop there. There is a ton right here. 
All right. Blessed be. I mean, he just breaks into praise. I mean, isn't that interesting? He starts off his letter, and it's, remember, it's a cyclical letter to be started in Ephesus and moved on to all these other churches. And he says, look, I'm Paul, it's Paul. I'm sitting here in prison, and I'm writing to you believers who are in here, 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 who are saints because of your faith and your belief in Jesus Christ. Now let's just get to what I want to get to you about. Praise God. Praise God for everything that he's done through Jesus because in Jesus, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heaven. Now, some of us will say, well, I can't wait till I get to heaven because I experienced those spiritual blessings. That's, what you're, that's where you're missing it. You're going to see that a lot of that is now too because we are in Christ. Actually, I want you to see it. Look at how many times he uses the term in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. All right, look at, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, he goes on and says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we're going to get to all that next time we get together. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. He goes at the end of verse 6 and he says, we're in the beloved. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption. Look at... Um, Verse 9, at the end of verse 9, again he says, in Christ. Look at, um, we again see at the end of uh, verse 10, in Him, again, beginning of verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Look at verse 13, in Him. Does he seem to be repeating something over and over and over and over and over? It has, it's all tied to the fact that we are now in Him. You are in Christ. So, in order for us to really begin to understand all these spiritual blessings and what they are and what they mean, as He's going to be unpacking for us all the way through in our study of the book of Ephesians, we have to look tonight at what does it mean to be in Christ. And again, my prayer is that you'll grasp this. My prayer is that you'll write these scriptures down. My prayer is that you'll go sit alone somewhere where it's quiet and you'll begin to let the Spirit speak to your heart about these things. But what is, see, because for too long, Christians have just gotten to the level of, well, I'm saved. That means I've been forgiven of my sins and I'm going to go to heaven. Yet, if you ask most Christians, how does God view you today? <sighs> they don't understand still. They don't know what it means to be in Christ. They don't understand that in Romans 8, 1, it says, there is no, therefore no condemnation for who? Those who are in Christ. At the same time, a lot of Christians today still sing that old song, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You were a sinner and you have been saved by grace. Oh, do you still sin? Yeah, I still sin. But what did Paul say in Romans 7? It's no longer I who do it. It's sin living in me. He wasn't saying he wasn't accountable. That God wasn't going to deal with it in love. But twice he says, it's no longer. A transition has occurred. It's no longer I who do it. It's sin living in my body. He saw himself now as different. He was no longer a sinner saved by grace. He was a new creation. What did he say? The old has gone. The new has come. What does that mean? Something died. Your old you is gone. Now, you still got the flesh struggle going on. Your flesh hadn't been redeemed. We've all talked about that. But you've got to understand how God views you now. He sees you as in Christ. 
Not someone he's forgiven and moved over here to this side and now those little ones have been forgiven and we'll see how they do. You have now been put in Christ and now when God looks at you, he's looking at you through Christ. And everything he feels toward Christ, let me say that again, and you're going to see this from Scripture tonight, everything he feels toward Christ, he now feels toward you. Exactly. Go to Romans 8. We've just talked about verse 1, how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But I want you to see verses 2 through 4 and then verse 9. Romans 8, verses 2 through 4. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free, where? How? In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God, past tense folks, has already done, has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And that was make you righteous. He's already done it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh by punishing Jesus. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, again, that's not a caveat. Like if you walk in the spirit, you'll be OK. If you walk in. No, no, no. He's saying there's a difference between those who are in the flesh now and those who are in the spirit. Even though I am still walking around in a fleshly body, even though I am still wrestling like you are with this body of flesh, like Paul said in Romans seven, God doesn't see me anymore as in the flesh. He sees me as where? In the spirit or in Christ. Look at verse 9. It clarifies it. You, however, are not in the flesh, see it, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. The issue now is not did you pray a prayer, not were you baptized, not were you, did you join a church? The issue is, did you receive the Spirit of God as confirmation that a transition has occurred and that he has now moved you from the death to life? And you have been, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Man cannot see the kingdom of God unless what? He's been born again of the Spirit. A supernatural birth has occurred and you've been given life, spiritual life. Write this down, look at it later on. John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. It says that when Jesus did many miracles, many people believed in him, but he would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. He didn't need man to testify to him about man. He knew the hearts of men. In other words, here are some people that say, hey, I believe, but Jesus didn't seal the deal. Why? Because he knew that their belief wasn't faith. And there is a difference. There is a difference. In order for you to be truly saved, you've got to do more than just believe. What did the Bible say about the demons? They believe and they tremble. We're talking real faith. And when you have real faith, the Bible says God then seals the deal with his spirit. Second Corinthians 13, 5 says it this way. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? See, we've over the years said, hey, did you pray this prayer? Were you baptized? Did you walk an aisle? No, no, no. The question we need to ask people is this. Do you have the spirit of God within you? And some of you right now are sitting there going, well, how do you know? Well, I'm not saying you're not saved. Please don't hear that at all. 
But even if you are, doesn't that mean that you've only stayed at that level of thank God I'm saved? And you haven't moved into even understanding whether or not the Spirit of God's in you? You have as a head knowledge because the Scripture said that? And you've heard the preacher talk about how the, God gives you his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. But most, many of you in this room might still be at that level of saying, I don't even really know if I got the spirit. I know the Bible says I do, but how do I know? Folks, let me just tell you, that was something I wrestled with for a two-year period as an associate pastor in New Orleans. Where all of a sudden I came under spiritual attack and Satan had me questioning whether or not I was even saved. Did I even have the spirit? And I'm not kidding you. It was a tormentuous time. I don't even know if that's a word, but it was a really bad time. <laughs> Torturous, is that the right word? Yes. My teleprompter's over here, so. I literally was serving as an associate pastor at that time. And one night we're having revival, and unfortunately we had one of those revival preachers that he had everybody questioning their salvation, and that's not my purpose here at all. Because I actually believe if, if you're not saved, the Spirit of God will show you. You don't need man to get you to get all worked up. But I had gotten all worked up. And I'm standing at the front dealing with people who are coming forward at the invitation. And I'm standing there thinking, I probably shouldn't even be doing this. I'm probably not saved myself. And so I then turned to one of the, we had eight pastors on staff at the time. It was a big church, eight pastors. I grabbed one of the other guys. I said, look, would you take my aisle? I need to pray. And I literally got down on my hands and knees and I'm praying at the altar this and I'm saying, God, and I'm sweating. If I'm not saved, tell me right now, and I will stand up in front of this whole church and confess that I'm not saved, and, and I'll, I'll publicly get saved right now. All I want you to do to show me that I'm not saved is have someone put their hand on my shoulder and say these words. Two seconds later, somebody put their hands on my shoulder. And I'm not kidding you. I'm not being gross. I'm just being honest. My bowels almost let go. I'll be honest. It was like... Oh, no! <laughs> but they didn't say those words. They said, hey, Jim Capel's wife, Beth, wants to get baptized. Would you baptize her right now? And I was like, um, okay, oh, all right. And so I'm running to the baptistry to go put on the waiters, and I'm like saying, oh, man, I was close, you know? <laughs> Yet the whole time, I'm, uh, Deacon's helping me get the waiters on, you know? And, and I'm thinking, I probably shouldn't be doing this. I'm not, not sure if I'm even saved. Oh, it was awful. It was one of my best friends, and I'm having the privilege of baptizing his wife, and I was just under torture. Someone Next week. <laughs> thank God, thank God, best baptism's good, you know? So. The next week, my wife will tell you, I had been asked by a family in that church who I had painted their house and they sold it immediately after painting it. And they had just moved to Lake Charles, Louisiana, and they said, Jim, would you paint our new house? <laughs> I was glad. I was glad to do it because maybe I shouldn't even be in the ministry. I'll go paint a house. And I'm literally painting the inside of this house and wrestling with this. And Dr. Charles Stanley was on the radio and he talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that says, The man without the Spirit does not understand the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. And God spoke to my heart. And folks, I don't understand everything, but I'll tell you this much. At that time, it was reminded of me and confirmed in my heart. I understood some things of the Spirit. I understood His Word. And the Scripture says clearly that if I am able to do that, that's only because the Spirit of God is within me. And then I took Ephesians 6, and we'll get there in about a year. <laughs> I took Ephesians 6, and I put on the helmet of salvation that day in that house in Lake Charles. And I cinched that chin strap on tight. 
And Satan could no longer mess with me in that area because I knew I had the Spirit because I understood some things of the Spirit that was impossible without his ability, without him being in me. Now, at the same time, I've also since then begun this journey of now moving into not just saying, well, good, I'm saved, to really wanting to know what it means to be in Christ. And Paul says, praise God, folks. He has blessed us in Christ. Listen again. With every spiritual blessing in him. In the heavenly places. Remember, you're not in the flesh if the spirit of God lives in you. God doesn't see you as fleshly. You're not a sinner saved by grace. Yes, you still sin, but it ain't you even. It's this body you're wrestling with. And the spirit of God within you is going to give you victory over that as well. You are now controlled by the spirit of God if Jesus lives within you. Well, go to Romans. You're in Romans 8. Look at verses uh, 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. The same Jesus that lived in a human body just like yours and mine was tempted just like you and me. But one is able to give you victory over sin too. Now, again, we're not going to move to the level of sinless perfection. You're not sinless if you're a Christian, but you should sin less. There, there will be victory if you learn how to walk in the spirit. All right. We'll get to more of that down the road. Go to John chapter. Uh, well, we're in Romans here. We'll make sure one more passage and then we've got to start to wrap up here. Uh, Romans chapter eight. Look at verses 14 through 16. For all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. Amen. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, which is so sad how many Christians live in that still. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Daddy, Abba, Father, the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Amen. Folks, I want you to move beyond just being confirmed that you're his child. I want you to start learning how to live in that power. Go to John chapter 14 real quick. We got two more passages and then we'll wrap us up. <clears throat> My clock says that we're almost at eight o'clock, but we started a little bit late tonight. So we're OK. John chapter 14. Look at verses 15 through 20. Jesus is speaking. He says in chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me. You will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you when forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be where in you. Look at what Jesus is saying here. He's talking to his disciples. He's saying, guys, I'm about to go to the cross. I'm going to teach you in the next chapter about abiding relationship. But before we even get to the abiding relationship, I got to tell you about something that's about to happen. When he says here, if you obey my commandments, the father will give you the spirit. He's not talking about if you do the commandments and don't honor. I mean, honor your father, and mother and don't kill and don't lie and don't steal. No, no, no. This commandment is what? That you believe in the one that he sent. That you believe that I'm the one the father sent. If you, do, if you, if you obey that command, my father's going to give you his spirit. 
and he's going to be with you and he's going to be he's going to be in you. Now, that didn't happen, of course, you know, till Jesus died and rose from the dead and then went to the father and then the spirit came. All right. So that's important. Now, at the same time, look at what he says now in verses 18 through 20. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day. You will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Now look closely at this again. In that day, you will know in that day that my spirit comes to live in you. You will know that I'm in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus says, I'm in the father. You're in me. That's good enough right there for us, isn't it? And then he says, oh, I'm sealing you from the outside and the inside, and I'm now in you. That's what baptism is a picture of, by the way. It's not only the old me's gone, I'm a new creation. We've been put into who? Christ. Christ. That's why the Greek word baptizo means to dip or to dunk under. It was a picture of dying. And when they would actually dye material, they would stick it into this vat, and it would come out the color of whatever it was. We have been put into Christ. Now, does that mean if you haven't been baptized, you're not put it? No, no, no. It's just a picture. But at the same time, he says, I want you to understand in that day, you're going to understand something has just occurred and you have been put in me and I'm in the father and I'm also in you. You haven't been checked off on a, God's notch on a belt. Something supernatural has just occurred and you will no longer be seen in the same way. You're now in me. Now. It even gets the best in John chapter 17. <clears throat> Keep in mind what Jesus just said in John 14. It'll make John 17 make a whole lot more sense. Unfortunately, we've had John 17 taught to us incorrectly. Listen to John 17 verses 20 through 26. Jesus, in, this is the high priestly prayer, if you will. He's in the garden. He's praying. The other uh, gospel accounts show us that he prayed for a while, an hour at least, each time. But they don't record except for, Father, if you want to take this cup from me, you know, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. But here in John, we have a recording of more of what Jesus prayed. Listen to what Jesus is praying here as he's right to go to the, he's going straight from here to the cross. He's got a couple of trials to go through, but then he's going to go to the cross. Listen to what Jesus is praying. He's already been praying for his disciples in the previous verses. Now in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these alone or only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. By the way, that's us. The word is passed on and we're here because of the testimony of the disciples, which have been passed on and passed on and passed on in the bark of the work of the spirit to draw us. And, and he's praying for us right now. Listen to what he prays. I pray that these would be may all be one. Now, at this point, this is how I used to preach it, unfortunately, and how a lot of preachers have preached it. He's, we thought he was praying that we'd all get along. That's not what he's praying. He is not praying that we would be one horizontally. He's praying that we would be one vertically and the context proves it. Look at what he's saying. I pray that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. Now, does that not also tie to the fact that if we are in Christ, there is a unity? Yes. And there's an understanding that we have that you can't even explain where you could not run into Christians like the Cuneos who run off to the to the weird coast, you know, 
but they come back and people want to run. You were dragged, okay. As long as you did it in obedience. But, but when they walk back in, people immediately hug them. And, and you guys get to just catch. You didn't have to catch up. You just pick right back up. Why? Because there is a unity amongst us because of Christ. But don't jump to that and miss what Jesus is saying here. Look at what he's saying again. He's saying, I want them to have the same relationship that you and I have, Father. I don't want them to just be my followers. I want you to do something that I know you're going to do. And I'm praying according to your will because this is your plan. To make them in the same relationship that you and I have. I want you to give it to them. And then look what he says. Go to the end of uh, the section here and look at verse oh, 25. Nah, I can't, I can't, we, gotta, we can't skip verses 23 and following. 23 to verse 26. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. Listen closely. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He's wanting to do that now through this study. He already said, I'm going to continue to make it known. That the love you have for me is the love that you have for them. And that I'll be in them. And it's all because of me. And folks, it's time that we move away from thinking that God's view of us changes according to how good or bad we are. How obedient or disobedient we have been. But really begin to understand what it means to be in Christ. And Paul starts off his letter by saying, praise God, because of Jesus, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is now ours. Doesn't that make you kind of want to know what that means? Me too. That's why we're going to come back next week. Let me pray for us. Father, oh, thank you so much for the fact that even in our spirits right now, as you're within us, we, there's a sense of excitement and, and there's that confirmation that your spirit is saying, this is truth. Lord, we want you to only line us up with your truth and with your word when it comes to this. Father, the enemy wants to come at times and say, well, be careful. Watch out. Lord, we know that we need to be careful. You've told us that. You've told us to test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. You've told us that there'll be doctrines taught by demons and we need to be careful. You've told us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. You've told us to examine everything according to your word. And so, Lord, we want to do that, but we also don't want to just sit back at a level of just saying, thank God I'm saved. Lord, it's time that we and the world got to experience because you just we saw that that was your prayer, Jesus, that we would not only understand that the world may know that you're in us. Father, move us by the power of your spirit through truth and us receiving it by faith. Move us into this realm that Paul's about to begin to pray for us, that we would know you better and that we would understand that the same power that rose you from the dead is now within us. Lord, I want to know what that means more. I want to be like Paul and get to know you more. 
it begins by helping me understand how you really see me. Oh, I know, Lord, there's a lot of unlearning we've got to do. But you're able to do that. I thank you for that. And Lord, I look forward to what you're going to do in our study of the book of Ephesians. And we thank you ahead of time for all that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.